Hello, my name is Steve and I'm an alcoholic. I say that I'm an alcoholic because I found my solution through the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, but my story does involve uh, drugs. Uh, I have a sobriety date of March the 3rd, 2014. Uh, so I just celebrated two years sober this past week and it's, it's pretty awesome. But uh, I, wanna, I wanna tell everybody out there my story uh, in the hopes of helping somebody, in the hopes of reaching somebody Anybody, anybody that's struggling or who has, you know, a lifetime of sobriety, you know, sometimes you just need, you need a little pick me up and you need something to listen to. And I hope that uh, my story can provide that for you. So um, the way that I usually like to begin is by saying that when I was in kindergarten, I was sexually abused. Uh, what happened was I went to my next door neighbor's house for a birthday party. Um, all the parents were downstairs and one of the older brothers took probably like five or six of us kids upstairs. Uh, when we got up there, he proceeded to tell us that we were gonna play spin the bottle. And, you know, I'm, I'm in kindergarten, I didn't even know what that was. I asked him, he said, well, you know, explains the rules, he says, but if the bottle lands on you, the person that it lands on, you have to have sex with them. And so I said, what's sex? And he said, come here and I'll show you. And uh, he proceeded to have sex with his sisters and other people at the party, I did what I did, and in the middle of it, my mom walked in, um, and my mom, my mom freaked out. She scolded me really, really bad, um, and I was very apologetic. I just kind of tucked it away. I didn't think anything about it, but about a year later, it it finally came out. You know, these kinds of things have a way of coming to the surface, and one night I had a breakdown and. You know, I'm in first grade and I run into my mom's bed and I'm crying and saying, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. I, like, for, for what, Steve, for what? And I said, for having sex. And she was like, we need, to, we need to get you help. And so I was put in the therapy and I thought it was completely normal. I didn't really think that there was anything out of the ordinary. I thought that everybody went to therapy, uh, you know, but that was my first my first exposure to, to kind of being a little bit different from everybody else. Um, it was something that I didn't pick up on then, but over time I eventually did recognize uh, that I just wasn't like everybody else. I wasn't like all the other kids. Um, but after about a year of therapy or so, I was, I was fine. You know, I was a very happy kid. I had a very normal childhood other than that. You know, I, I played sports. I was you know really good at school uh, the only thing that was out of the ordinary again something I didn't recognize until later on is that my father was an alcoholic um, he would go to, to to the bar pretty much every night he would be playing softball or whatever and you know he'd bring me to the games and then he'd bring me to the bar and that was just a normal ritual for us you know it would be a Tuesday night, and he'd be like, hey, you want to go down down to uh, the pub with me? And again, it's just something that I thought that all kids did, was hanging out in bars when they were, you know, first, second grade. I thought that was normal. Um, I lived on a main road, so I really didn't, didn't have the experience of growing up playing with a lot of kids. I was an only child, still am an only child, and uh, yeah, so, so I kind of kept to myself. I went to, went to the bars with my dad. And I was very, very close with my mom, very close with my mom. Um, 
but that that was pretty much my early childhood. Uh, when I got to middle school, middle school was rough. But you know, middle school is rough for everybody. I don't I don't care who you are. Middle school sucks. It just does. Um, when I got to middle school, was when I first had like an identity crisis, because you know this was the first time where kids that I had grew up with and I was really good friends with in elementary school, they didn't want to hang out for me, hang out with me for whatever reason, you know, because I wasn't I wasn't one of the popular kids, you know. So I I started trying to do everything, absolutely everything I could to fit in. You have to understand, I'm a six foot tall, 250 pound white guy. And I would be going down the hall of my middle school wearing a Kangol hat and a Sean John velour suit because I wanted to be cool. I would show up to dances like that. And I look back on it now and like, no wonder nobody wanted to hang out with me. But, but that, that was it, you know. I had my group of friends. You know, eventually I, I found who I fit in with. I fit in with the punk rock kids. And that was, that was what I did. I started hanging out with them, you know whatever you want to call them, the emos, the goths, whatever, that was, that's where I started, you know, um, skateboarding, everything like that. Uh, but at the same time, I was, I was also a jock, you know, I, I played football, I played basketball, I played lacrosse, you know, my grandfather is a college basketball coach. So growing up, I was always going to games and those were the kids I wanted to fit in with. I wanted to fit in with the jocks, but then they would be like, oh, but you hang out with these kids. And so I felt excluded. And then even deeper into that, I was one of those kids who was very, very anti-drugs, anti-cigarettes, everything. I wouldn't touch it. And so now I'm hanging out with the outcasts, if you will, and a lot of them, that's what they did. They smoked, they drank, they did their thing. But I, I didn't want to be a part of it. I remember the first time that I ever saw weed, um, I was in probably seventh grade, I'd say. I was with one of my friends from the football team. And... Uh, you know, we were hanging outside, riding bikes or skateboarding or whatever, and this older kid from uh, from the high school was walking down the street, and he had a joint. And I was like, well, what's that? And he's like, oh, it's, it's weed, man. You want to smoke? And I cried, and I ran. I ran all the way back to my house, which was probably like a half mile, just ran. I got in there, and I broke down. And I'm like, Bob, these kids, they were, they were smoking marijuana. You're never going to believe it. They were smoking marijuana. But don't worry, I'll, I'll never do that. I'll never do that. And that's, that's what I thought. And that's what I believed. That was not what I was going to do. Um, but that didn't last very long. Um, when, when it came time for me to go to high school, I didn't want to be a part of that scene anymore. I had been in public school for my entire life. And I wanted to change a pace. I wanted to reinvent myself. I wanted to to finally have a chance to at least fit in with somebody. And so I made the most drastic decision I could, and I went to an all-boys private Catholic school in the Philadelphia area. So the summer before I went into that, uh, that high school, I had a girlfriend named Kim, and, um, and she, she, was, she was a smoker. You know, she smoked weed, and her older brothers and sisters smoked weed. And so I liked her. And she was my girlfriend, and I trusted her. And so I started smoking. And I didn't see what the big deal was. You know, the first probably four times I smoked, I didn't even get high. I didn't feel it at all. I probably wasn't holding it in right. But it just wasn't It wasn't working for me. So it was just like, I'll do it because people will accept me for it. So then when I got to the school and 
I literally knew absolutely nobody. That was the identity that I chose to carve out for myself. I was going to be this stoner kid, and I was completely fine with that. You know, I was on the football team again. I was finally at least making some friends there. I was on the lacrosse team, but, you know, my nickname was Smokes. That's what I did. I smoked before practice. I smoked, you know, after games, whatever. Um, and that was that was pretty much that. Um, the first time I finally actually felt it, it was like a breath of fresh air. You know, it was all of a sudden I completely understood why I had been trying for three weeks to do this. And now it was like, wow, this is this is something I want to do constantly, you know, not in an addictive sense, but just in the sense of I would not mind doing this again. This is cool. Um, being being on the football team was also me getting invited to the parties for the first time. And so I started I started drinking on the weekends um, and it was it was just normal high school stuff, you know, at least. At least where I'm from, that's pretty much what all, all high school kids did. And so I didn't think anything of it. You know, looking back on it now, I clearly had alcoholic tendencies from that, that, that age. Because even though I was just starting to drink, I was always the first one there and the last one to leave. I was falling over, you know. I remember one night there was, there was a keg and the cops came. And so everybody scattered except for me because I had my favorite hoodie back at the party. And so I walked back. It turned out it wasn't the cops. It was just some guy walking his dog. But now there's a keg there all by itself and just me. What do you think I did? If you're like me, you know exactly what I did. I, I didn't finish it, obviously, but I, I went hard. And it was hilarious when everybody showed up and there's Steve on the ground covered in puke. But everybody finally came back. But... I thought that was cool. You know, I thought that that was me being accepted. I thought this was me, you know, finally, finally making friends, real friends. But, you know, it, it was whatever. It was whatever. Um, so then, then my sophomore year, we'll fast forward a little bit. My sophomore year of high school, I was uh, on the mock trial team at my school. I would go to, you know, Philly for competitions. And one day on the way home, um, I got a text from somebody and they were saying, hey, there's a bunch of pro wrestlers at our school right now. My friends knew that I was a fan of wrestling and they were like, there's these pro wrestlers here. They're trying to get people to come to some training school. You need to know about this. You need to be here. And I thought it was just my friends fucking around with me. I was like, okay, yeah, sure. It's a bunch of pro wrestlers at school, right? So when I got to the school, I went to the office just to inquire and it turned out it was 100% true. There were pro wrestlers at the school trying to get people to join their training academy. So me and a couple other kids that I knew um, went to try out. And out of the four of us that went, I was the only one who was asked to come back. And so I began my journey of being a pro wrestler. Um, and it was, it was a whirlwind. You know, right out the gate, it was a whirlwind. You know, about maybe three months into my training, they asked me if I would be interested in hosting the uh, the weekly television show. So now I'm 16 years old, 15 years old, hosting this TV show every week, wrestling on the weekends, and then training every single day. And it was awesome. It was great. I was living my dream 
and I'm still in high school. Um, but with that came my first exposure to real drugs. You know, the pro wrestling scene has a lot of steroids. It has a lot of cocaine. It has a lot of painkillers. And this was the first time that I was actually seeing these things. I knew they existed, but now I'm in a locker room, you know, in a high school gym in front of 40 people. And in the back, there's 17 wrestlers all in a group doing cocaine. And I'm just like, where am I? What am I doing? This is so cool. That was my response. This is so cool. You know, I grew up idolizing Sid Vicious. I grew up idolizing Kurt Cobain. You know, I saw, you know, drugs as something that was like a badge of honor. All these people that I admired did drugs. And now, even if I'm not doing them, at least I'm around them. I'm around the people who are doing them. And I was getting that contact high just by being there. You know, on the... On the weekends after shows, me and uh, the guy that I would tag team with, we would we would go to parties in Northeast Philly. You know, there'd be all these people there doing God knows what in the basement. And I thought that this was the coolest thing ever. I thought if the guys at school could only see me right now, they would know that I am the man. I am the man. This is awesome. Um, but it, it didn't last. It didn't last. Um, I wound up wrestling for them for probably around two years, I would say, maybe maybe a little bit longer. And there was an incident where uh, I was dropped on my head. And when that happened, I, uh, I, I quit. I took my ball and I went home. And that is one thing that is very constant throughout my story. When things even go slightly awry for me, I pick up my ball and I go home. I never face situations. I never try to persevere. Never try to persevere. Just quit because it's easier. It's easier to not try than to try and fail. That was my mentality. And it stuck with me for many, many years. But this was just the first instances of it starting to come out. Um, back at high school, though, you know, things... Things were going, you know, I wouldn't say they were going great. I wasn't the best student because I thought that if I tried hard, that kids wouldn't want to be friends with me. I thought that this was another strike against me. So I would purposely play numb. I would purposely, you know, act like I didn't know answers to questions or purposely get bad grades on tests just because I didn't want to be that guy. You know, I had a reputation to hold up. I'm a stoner. I'm not the smart kid. So this is what I'm going to do. Um, just by luck one, one day in high school, and this is an absolutely insane story. I swear it is 100% true. Um, I was walking home from school one day, uh, to my friend's house. And as we were crossing this, this little path, we noticed an ID on the ground. And so I went and picked it up and I looked at it and it was a passive, like uh, a passing resemblance for me. You know, if you studied it, you could tell that is definitely not you. But real quick glance, yeah, that, that could be you. And it said that the guy had just turned 21. So now I didn't have to rely on going to people's houses for parties or going to the woods. Now I could bring the party to me. Now I'm going to be the coolest, school, the coolest kid at school because I'm throwing the parties. And, you know, that totally did not happen. I totally did not become the coolest kid at school. 
But I did get a lot of friends that way, or at least I thought they were friends. You know, they were the ones who would come around because I had beer, because I was throwing parties. You know, there were a few in there that I became very close with, but the majority of them were fair weather friends, as I would soon learn. Um, but this was this was awesome for me. Now I had an ID. Now I could drink whenever I wanted. You know, so I would go to the local bar. I try it there. And I'd be like, okay, okay, now I'm not going to go to any other bars. This is going to be my spot. I made up this whole backstory about the guy, the, the name on the ID. I took that name. I created a persona for myself. I said, my name's Joe. You know, I graduated from Drexel. I did this. I did that. I had this whole story. <laughs> and the people at the bar bought it. They completely bought it. I will never forget. There was, there was one night. It was me and Kim, uh, that ex-girlfriend. And she was in the car studying for her SATs. And I should have probably been doing the exact same thing. But instead, she sat in the car to study while I went into the bar to get hammered. And that was, that was cool. That was what I wanted. Um, but it, it led to finally being more than just every now and then. Or not even every now and then. It stopped being just on the weekends. Now, since I had the ID, now I would skip out on school so I could go buy a case. You know, sit sit in my car, listen to the Phillies if they had a day game, drink, and just be my best, be my myself. I didn't want to be with anybody else because if you were around me, you were going to want some of my beer. You know, I'm not trying to have a party right now. If you want a party, we'll get a keg, but we're not partying. I'm just getting, you know, a 12-pack, and I'm going to sit here and watch the game. So, peace. You know, be gone. And that, that was that. Was that. Um, but Kim was not having that. And this was, uh, this was the first instance of frothy emotional appeal, if you will. This was the first time where somebody was saying to me, look, I think you have a problem. You are drinking way too much. And it's either me or the booze. And because I was a young alcoholic addict at the time, and not even close to being in the throngs of my addiction, I said, fine. And I cut back, you know, just whatever. That's fine for you. I will do it. Um, and that, that was about that. You know, I, I still threw parties, but it was scaled back a little bit. I was finally at least a little bit comfortable with myself. I was starting to figure out who I was or at least who I was in high school. And so that was fine. Um, but the thing that, that, was different for me coming into a Catholic school was the exposure to the religion. Like I grew up Catholic. My parents, my grandparents, they're, they're very hardcore Catholics. But for me, I just couldn't buy into it. I never could buy into it. Um, I would, rem I remember being in theology class. This is my sophomore year. And while the priest, cause all of our theology professors that I had were priests, um, Augustinian friars to be exact. Um, he was up at the front of the room talking about some Bible verse and I'm in the back with my head down. The Bible is bullshit. The Quran is a lie. Just all of these things to just be super obnoxious because I could, because I didn't like this indoctrination. And that's what I felt this was. This was indoctrination. This was them coming at the youth. And I was not silent about it. That's one thing that you can never say about me. I am not silent. And so I would go off and 
if I felt that a teacher was disrespecting another student or God forbid disrespecting me, I was going to tell them about it. I was going to tell them exactly where they could go. And this got me into trouble every single year. It was like clockwork. You knew that Steve was going to have a breakdown at least once a year on a teacher and then you'll be safe for another couple weeks, another couple months, whatever. Um, the, the thing about myself that I had finally realized was just how angry I was. This, this was me recognizing that even though I had been freaking out at teachers, it went a lot deeper than them just, than them just, you know, disrespecting me in my mind. And they gave out some anger management test at, at my school and I did absolutely terrible on it. I had one of the highest grades in the school and I had to go to anger management counseling um, that was provided by the school. But this was, this was my first time since I was little going into any kind of therapy and it was a joke. You know, I thought it was a joke. I did not care. You know, I would get into fights at school. You know, I'll go back a little bit. The very first day of school, I got into a fight. It's that stupid prison mentality that I thought I needed going into a Catholic high school that if you're the new guy, you got to stake out your claim. So I got into a fight and that, that just kind of established, I hoped at least that if you had a problem, I was not afraid to throw my fists. And these were all just adding up and adding up and adding up until my senior year. Um, my senior year, there, there was an incident where a teacher and me had gotten into it. Um, it wasn't physical, but I ripped off my uniform top. I ripped up my textbook. I threw it at him, walked out, and had this breakdown in the hallway. Um, and I was, I was taken to the principal's office and told that I needed to go get a mental evaluation and that I wasn't welcome back at my high school until I went and did that. So I did, and I went, and I got saw by this, this psychiatrist, and I was honest, which I, for a long time, said was my biggest mistake. I shouldn't have been honest with him. Now I know that that's bullshit, but I was honest. And so he said that I had two options. I could either voluntarily go to the psych ward right now, or they were going to 302 me, whatever you want to call commit me against my will. Um, so those were my options, and so I decided to just, just go for it. Um, when I got to the psych ward, they put me in a low-functioning unit. Even though I was still in high school, I had just turned 18, and so they wouldn't put me with the adolescents or people my age. And so they moved me to a, uh, a low-functioning adult unit where the groups consisted of coloring. You know, this is my first exposure to a psych ward, and I feel like I'm being treated like I'm a baby, and I hated it, and I could not wait to get out of there. But while I was in there, I was diagnosed bipolar, and this was the first time that I finally had a name for what was going on with me. I had a name for what was going on in my brain, you know, and I took it as an identity which if you have a mental illness, you should never do. You are not bipolar. You just have a bipolar, you just have bipolar disorder, but you are not bipolar. 
you are not depression. You are not whatever you have. But that was something that I didn't see at the time. And now I had this, this condition that just explained everything away. Now I had an excuse for why I did the things that I did. Um, and I was put on some, some heavy duty psychotropic drugs. Um, and they drove me absolutely insane. Um, when I got out of the psych ward, I maybe spent around two or three weeks, you know, just kind of being okay, but not, not all there. And then finally one night I snapped and the night I snapped was the night I decided that I was going to die. And so I waited for my parents to leave. They were going out. And as soon as my parents left, I went and got a bottle of pills that were sent home with me from the psych ward. Do not know what they are to this day. I downed the bottle of pills with some vodka and I laid on the couch and I waited to die. And that's what I was going to do. And I was completely fine with it. I put on Viva La Bam because I loved Viva La Bam. I laid down and that was that. I went to sleep. But that's pretty much all I did was go to sleep. When I woke up, I was back in the hospital and then back in the psych ward. And now I had to come to grips with the fact that I just attempted suicide and that they weren't going to just let me out in a couple of days and that things were a lot more serious than, than I had imagined. Um, while I was in the psych ward, um, my, my girlfriend broke up with me. She called me on the psych ward phone and told me that she could not deal with everything that I had put her through with this and that she was, she was done. And so I was completely crushed and I wound up staying in the psych ward for a few weeks. Um, when I got out, when I tried to go back to my high school, they were not going to just let me back. This had all been adding up and adding up and they weren't going to just let me back in those doors. So they sent me to a, uh, a day treatment pro program for uh, kids my age where, you know, we would have groups all day and smoke cigarettes, even though we weren't supposed to. We would go and smoke cigarettes and not do our homework and then go home. And that was, that was what I did. And now I finally had a group where I fit in because now I am around people who were taking drugs a lot more than than I had been, you know, and they weren't the old heads from Philly. They were people my age who were doing drugs. And, you know, I was the most popular guy there, I thought. And I have all these new friends and I have all these new connects. That's what that was. Now I have connects. This is this is cool. Um, Kim took me back. She she had a change of heart, but things were not the same. They just were not the same. Um, when I completed that day program, my high school said that I was allowed to come back. But when I got back, things were completely different. You know, I remember that a kid came up to me on probably like my second or third day back from from it. And he said, dude, I heard you tried to kill yourself. I said, yeah, I did. And he said, man, you couldn't even do that, right? And that stuck with me. That sticks with me today. I still remember that. And I did not want to be there. I did not want to do this. Um, but I did. I, I stuck it out. I stuck it out for the rest of the year. You know, thank God for my parents and for my teachers. 
because somehow I managed to pass. You know, my uh, my guidance counselor had given me a card that would give me an unlimited hall pass. I could come and go as I pleased from class. So I would go to my first three periods, go to lunch, say I'm going to the office, and then just leave. And I did this all the time. But I passed, and I got a scholarship to the University of Akron in Akron, Ohio. And so I thought, this is great. You know, I at least have a future. You know, I'll be out of this town soon enough, and I can start over. I have my girlfriend that I've been with since freshman year. You know, I'm past this psych ward stuff. This is great. However, I also still had that ID, and I still had that little thing called alcoholism still deep inside of me. And so that finally was rearing its ugly head again. Um, my new thing that I would do was to just go out and buy beer for the younger kids. And that was, that was cool for me. And I wound up going to bring somebody to get beer one day before I went to a Flyers game with Kim. And as I was going to pull into the parking lot, somebody blocked my car and started honking and saying that, you know, that's my parking spot. You're about to take my parking spot. And because I was on the wrong medication and pissed off and just tried to commit suicide, I was like, if you want this spot, you're going to make me move it. You're going to make me move my car. And I turned to Kim, I turned to my friends and I said, I'm about to get arrested. Here's my keys. Here's my cell phone. Come pick me up. I went into the trunk of my car where I had my hockey stick from, uh, from practice the night before. And I walked over to the guy's car and he said, what are you going to do with that stick? And I warned him, I said, if you take one step towards me, I'm going to hit you with it. And he said, bullshit. No, you won't. And this is probably like, it looked like my dad, 45 years old, glasses, whatever. You know, and I said, no, dude, seriously, you don't know who the fuck I am. I will hit you with this. I'm crazy. And that was my label. I was cool with that. The dude took one step, whack, cracked him in the dome. And two seconds later, you know, he's he's screaming he's crying what happened now there's all these people screaming and running they wound up getting 11 911 calls on a sunday afternoon in a small suburban town outside of philadelphia that's like a thing in that town all these cops pulled up took me right to the police station and it was i'll never forget it was martin luther king day weekend and they said it's sunday tomorrow's martin luther king day you're going to be sitting in jail until Tuesday before you even see a judge. We're going to be charging with assault with a deadly weapon. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. Um, but luckily, during the scuffle with this guy, I had said, and this was a lie, but I said, I'm only 17. You know, you just hit a minor. You're going to jail for hitting a minor. You're worried about me. You hit a minor. And that got ingrained into the guy's head along with my hockey stick. And so he came into the police station and said, look, this kid's only 17, I think. I don't want to ruin his life. Uh, I don't want to press any charges, but I want to show you the cut that I have. And then he turned to my friend who was sitting in the police station, my friend Dan, and he said, and you, you have to make sure to learn to control your friend's primal urges. 
my friend Dan looked at him and said, you have to learn to stop being such a fucking asshole. And then the guy tried to start fighting my friend in the police station. The cops broke it up. They said, if you're not pressing charges, get out. Told my friend to sit down. A couple minutes later, they let me out. They said to me, we can't just let you go with nothing. You're going to get a disorderly conduct for fighting in public, but you caught a break. Go to, go to your hockey game. And that was my first time getting arrested. And it was a doozy, let me tell you. But now I had this great story that I could tell to everybody at school if they wanted to know about more about why they shouldn't mess with me. And I wore it like a badge of honor. Um, a little bit after that uh, was the second time that I got arrested. Um, and this one was my first drug possession charge. Um, I still at that point, even though I had met those kids in the day program, you know, I still hadn't tried anything really other than, than smoking weed, um, and drinking beer and stuff. So it was like, not even on my mind. It was just like, oh, that's a possibility. I know how to get it. Um, so one night me and my friend were at the swim club around the corner from my parents' house and we were smoking. We had finished smoking. We were just sitting there. All of a sudden we saw headlights and we started pulling away and I said, well, at least it wasn't a cop. As soon as I say that the headlights go on and I'm pulled over, they found the weed on me. It was less than a bull pack. It was less than half a gram I had on me. But now I'm getting dragged into the police station. I can see my house from where I am, but they're not going to let me bring my car home or have my parents come picking up. They're impounding my car. They're bringing me to the police station. They're interrogating me, asking me about heroin and cocaine and all this stuff. And I'm like, dude, I just smoke weed. I just smoke weed. But I was such a little badass that I gave them some fake story about some guy I met at 69th Street. That's where I get my stuff. You'll never find out anything other from me, pigs. That's the attitude that I had. That's the things I was saying. And my parents came, they picked me up, and that was that. Um, but it was, it was my first time really finding out what the criminal justice system was like. You know, before it was just a slap on the wrist, pay the fine for the hockey fight incident. Now I actually am going to court. Uh, now I'm actually taking, you know, a plea bargain, things like that. I wound up getting community service. It wasn't a big deal, but it was there, you know, and it was, it was on my record. That's the thing you have to remember. It was on my record. Um, fast forward a little bit. Uh, about two days after I graduated high school, I got a phone call from Kim and she informed me that I was not going to be her boyfriend anymore because she was going to Washington DC for school and I was going to Ohio for school and it just wasn't going to work. And so now for the first time I'm single since I was in eighth grade and it was just crazy to me. Um, I didn't know what to do, especially because I had just gotten a senior week house with six other couples. And now I'm going to be the only single guy in this house. So my responsibility seeing as how I had the ID was to get the beer. So I loaded up my parents' car with all this booze, drove all the way down to the shore, and then got there and said, fuck this, fuck them, this is going to be my booze, and went back home. And 
that began the summer of 2008, which is the best summer of my life. One that I will never forget. You know, um, that kid, Dan, who I had been in the police station with that day, became my best friend because he was younger than me. All my friends were down the shore for the summer, so I started hanging out with him. And we had a small group. We were inseparable. You know, we started throwing parties every day. I met another girl. Things were, things were going great, you know. But that was also the first time that I ever tried something other than just smoking weed and drinking. Um, I had developed a cyst on my lower back. And so I needed to go get surgery uh, to get it removed. And after I got it removed, I was given perk tens. And I tried them and it was a whole new world once again. We're back to that exact same feeling from when I finally got high for the first time off of weed. Now I have this with pills. Now I'm itchy, I'm warm, I'm nodding out. This is, this is great. This is completely different. How did I not know this existed before? And it was habitual. It was every single day until they were gone. And then I'd go back to the doctor, get more until they were gone. I think it worked maybe four times until my doctor was like, no, I'm not giving them to you anymore. And that was that. I was like, all right, fine. But now I had the taste for it. It was in there. It was in me. And I remembered it. Uh, when it came to the end of end of summer, I, I went to Ohio. I went to school. But when I got there, I was just completely a mess. You know, I was still fucked up over the breakup with Kim. Now the girl that I had been talking to, I'm away from her. So I'm on my own for the first time. You know, and I just started abusing anything I could get my hands on. You know, it started with my psych meds. Then it was buying as much weed as I could. Then it was buying shrooms. You know, just whatever I could to escape myself. I wasn't going to class. The only class I went to was an English class because it happened to be in my dorm. I wasn't doing my laundry because my mom always did my laundry. So why am I going to start doing it? I have Febreze. I can just Febreze that shit, you know. I was disgusting. If my roommate from college listens to this, I'm sorry. I am really sorry for what I did because that was not cool, dude. <laughs> that was not cool. But, but you know, I, I still had fun. I still had fun. I had way too much fun. But at the same time, I was miserable. I was just existing. That's what I was doing. And I, I called my mom and I said, I don't want to do this anymore. And I called up the girl from that summer that I had been with, and I said, I'm coming back. We can be together. She said, great. A week later, my parents come, pick me up. I'm on my way back. And as I am leaving Ohio, I get a text message from the girl saying, oh, by the way, I have a boyfriend, so we can't be together. But it's cool. You're coming home. And I'm just like, wow. I just dropped out of school for this wow so i get i get back and i was absolutely insane i wasn't going to school anymore so i didn't think i really needed to do anything i sat around and i drank and i smoked i didn't do any pills or anything like that you know after the doctor had cut me off that was that but you know i just i went back to how i was before you know depressed and miserable and angry um and lusting after this girl. 
I wanted it so bad to have her in my life. It got to the point where I would, you know, I drove her around with her new boyfriend to North Philly. And I'm like, why are we going to North Philly? I don't know what's in North Philly, but all right, let's go. So he gets North Philly, and then all of a sudden they come out with these little blue baggies. And this is my first exposure to heroin. And I'm like, what is that? They tell me, and I'm like, oh, okay. Just don't say anything. And go go about my way. Um, this lasted for a couple months until my parents had enough. And they said, look, you either need to go out and get a full-time job or you need to go back to school. It's your choice. And so I said, all right, fine, I'll go back to school. And so I enrolled at uh, the local Penn State campus. Um, now that I was in school, I finally had a routine again. I finally had a schedule. And so I kind of started settling down. You know, I, I had gotten a part-time job during this time for my father, uh, working at a funeral home. I was assisting with embalmings. I was assisting with dressings. I was, you know, helping with flower arrangements, parking cars, all that kind of stuff. I was getting paid well. I wanted to, you know, eventually maybe go into mortuary school after Penn State or something like this was this was great you know I was an elementary education major this is things are good um and then I met Oxycontin and that was the beginning of the end um I I had gotten introduced to them by somebody I tried them and there was that feeling all over again um during this same time, Kim came back into my life. She saw everything I was doing. She missed me. I missed her. I seemed to be doing okay. She had left DC. Let's give it another shot. You know, and it was, it was good. Things were good. And then the Oxycontin started taking over. Then it started becoming something I was going to want to do every single day. And... This was the second time that frothy emotional appeal came into play. Once again, Kim saying, please, please knock it off with the Oxycontin. And I said, okay. But this time, it was a little bit harder. That time, I had to think about it. That time, maybe I did slip a couple when I said I wasn't, you know. Uh, but but it, was, it was under control. In my mind, it was under control. Um, during that time period, I was introduced to somebody who, reintroduced I should say, we went to the same middle school for only one year, but I didn't really know him during that time. But um, I was reintroduced to somebody who was a rapper. Um, they had been writing a lot. And when I was in high school, I was in a punk band, so I liked writing, and I liked writing raps for fun. You know, when I was a wrestler, that was something I would do when I was drunk. I would start freestyling. And so this was just like something to pass the time that I would do. I would always write. And so somebody said, you know, he writes. You guys listen to the same sorts of music. Why don't you guys get together? And we did. And we started a band called Black Sheep. Um, so original. Let me tell you, so original. Mm -hmm. There's definitely not another punk band or rap group named Black Sheep in the world. But uh, we started that. And we caught a break. We caught a break way before we were ready. But we caught that break. Um, the next door neighbor of the person that I was in the group with 
was a promoter for uh, for boxing shows, celebrity boxing shows. And he was having Rodney King come in to fight a former Philly cop from L.A. And so Rodney King just happened to be at the house next door while we were practicing one day. And he could hear us through the through the windows that were opened. And they came over and asked if we would make a song for him and if we would perform our songs live at uh, at the uh, at the fight. You know, the night before at the bar at the hotel, we would have a set. And then the next night we would be able to perform while he came to the ring live. And we thought, wow, this is great. We're going to we're making it, you know. And we've been together maybe six months at the time. But this is a huge exposure. There's going to be a couple thousand people there. We have a press conference. It's on. You know, it's on. Um, and it went just about as well as you would expect. You know, the there was problems with the sound. There was only one microphone. We were we were in the ring. You know, the night before, it went great. The night before in the bar, wonderful. Now you have this new experience being in the ring. And not only is the sound terrible, but we're in Philadelphia. And the guy is about to fight a Philadelphia cop. The crowd was hostile. To say the very least, hostile. And the booze rain down um later on somebody had said to us they weren't booing us it was rodney king they were booing but that was like my first exposure to to you know being out in the public doing my music and it went like that but we caught a break um and we had we had exposure finally uh we had a studio we had somebody who gave us some money to, to build a studio and we started going, going to work and recording and eventually getting shows. And so now I had, I had this great setup, you know, I had the love of my life back. I had a job at a funeral home. I'm going to school for elementary education. And I started this awesome band where I'm going to be playing at bars like hell. Yeah, this is awesome. Oh, and I got a steady Oxycontin connect. So even better. This is great. But it wasn't great. It wasn't great. It was absolutely horrible. But it was just a ticking time bomb. It was coming very, very slowly. You know, like I said, Kim wanted me to stop with the, with the pills. I tried my best. But every now and then I would have my slip. But that was that. And then January 31st, 2010 came. Uh, January 31st, 2010, that kid Dan, the one who was my best friend during the summer of 2008, the one who called the guy that I hit with a hockey stick, an asshole, uh, committed suicide. And I'll never forget where I was and what I was doing. I was on the computer, I was on Facebook, and I got, I got, the, I got the call. And I was done. I lost it, completely lost it. I, I don't even remember those days. That, that period is just a blur because I was so drunk and I was so high and surrounded by so many people that it was just a blur. But what I did know was that a major piece of me was gone. There was something that wasn't there anymore this was the first time where I was actually like, I can die. 
if Dan can die, I can die. And if I'm going to die, I'm not going to be held down. So I left Kim. I said, peace. It was right after my 21st birthday. You know, after Dan had died and I left Kim, I had nobody to hold me back from, from getting Oxycontins and doing whatever I wanted, whenever I wanted. But unfortunately for me at that time, uh, that was when Oxycontin switched their distributors or the makeup or whatever. And so my guy didn't have him anymore, but he had Percocet 30. And I had taken perks before from my back, so I thought this was cool. And there we go. Now I have this, this connect for, for perks. Um, and that just continued. That just continued. I was a mess. Um, I wound up losing my job at the funeral home. Uh, it was not related to drugs, I will say that. But I wound up losing the job for, for a problem that, uh, that occurred um, at school. They found out about that weed charge. I said, remember that it's on my record, and that's why. When Penn State found out that I had a weed charge on me, they said that I couldn't be an elementary school teacher with that on my record. And now, once again, I picked up my ball and I went home. The smart thing to do probably would have been like, okay, I'll just switch majors. No, not for me. For Steve, if he can't have exactly what he wants, if he can't be a second grade teacher, no, he's not going to be here. And so I left. So I didn't have my girlfriend. I didn't have my job. All I had was my music. And that was it. And my pills. Um, and then around that same time, I got, I got a phone call from a kid named Dave. Um, Dave and me had gone to high school together. We were very, very good friends. But after graduation, he wound up moving to New York. So it was random to be getting a phone call from him. But he called me and he said, hey, man, uh, do you want to hang out? I said, hang out, dude. You live in New York. What are you talking about? He goes, no, no, I, I moved back home. I said, why? I thought you had a job, this, that. He goes, well, I have cancer. And I said, cancer? What kind of cancer? And he said, not the good kind. And so I said, yeah, I'll, I'll come right over. So you would think the normal, caring, loving friend that I am supposed to be and that I was when I was a senior in high school, I would be going over there to spend some time with my sick friend. But instead, I went over there, and the first thing I noticed was the bottle of Percocet and the bottle of Xanax that the hospital had sent him home with. And I started talking to him about them, and he said, yeah, I, I can't take them with my chemo. It makes me sick. He goes, you can just have them. Just here, take them. You know, and he's like, nobody ever comes and spends time with me. Nobody that we went to high school comes through. Uh, you know, nobody wants to be your friend when it's at the end. And he said, but you're here. And the truth was, as much as I did love seeing my friend and wanted to be there for him, my first reason for going was because I knew I was going to be getting Percocet. I knew I was going to be getting whatever he had. And that was, that was cool with me. I was fine with that. Um, this just continued. This continued for a while. And, you know, things with the band started getting bad. Because now I was so concerned with getting my 30s 
and doing that whole scene that I didn't care about my music anymore. I would go to shows and somebody would slip me like three pills before I'd get on stage. I'd just perform Blasted every single time. And that was cool with me. Um, until one day I couldn't get any. Somebody, you know, my guy that I bought them from didn't have any. Dave didn't have any. And now I'm dope sick or perk sick, whatever you want to call it. But this is the first time that I'm feeling this. And I'm just like, whoa, what is this feeling? I don't like this. I need to figure out a way to make this stop. And so I went online and I Googled, let me find a rehab. Clicked on the very first one that opened up and I called them. They said they were located in South Florida. And I was like, sweet, I get a vacation and I get to not be sick anymore. What else can you tell me about this place? They told me that they had jet skis, they told me they had horses, and they told me it was about 10 minutes from my grandparents' house. So I said, sign me up. Let's go. Called my mom at work. Mom, I'm going to Florida. But what? Why? Why? Because I'm addicted to Percocet and I need to go to Florida. Wait, you're addicted to Percocet? Yeah, but that's not important. What's important is I'm going to Florida and they're going to pay for my plane ticket. It's right near Mammy and Poppy too. And she's like, can we like discuss this when I get home? I said, no, no, no. They need me at the airport at like five o'clock. They said, if I don't come now, I can't come. And so my mom was like, okay, okay, whatever. Do what you need to do. And she left work. She came home. And before I left, she said to me, how'd you find this place? And I said, I just Googled it. And she said, that's not shady. She said, what I want you to do is remember this code word. I want to give you a safe word. If you get down there and it's not what it's supposed to be, I want you to call me and say banana and I will get you out. That is your safety word. And I said, cool. So I got on the plane. I got down to Florida and there were no horses and there were no jet skis. And it was about an hour and a half from my grandparents' house. And I'm like, this is totally not what I expected. But then I go inside and I see how big the cafeteria is. And I see the pretty girls that are walking around. And I'm like, maybe this really wasn't that bad of an idea. I get upstairs and now they give me a dose of Suboxone. And I'm, whoo, never even knew Suboxone was a thing. I thought I was going to have to just sweat it out. Now you're actually give me a like a pill to make me feel better rehab's great i love rehab you know i got my little my little boo love in there i had i had all these friends i was rapping for people i was mr popularity king of rehab coolest guy in rehab loved it until i got out of treatment and now they're sending me to a recovery house but it it the one that they sent me to the way that they had it structured this treatment center um when you would get out of your 30 day program, you would go to a halfway house that was, you know, just like an old uh, motel type thing with just everybody living there, probably about a hundred people. And then you would progress down, step down program while you're going to IOP. Um, so I get there and they pull up and I notice that this place looks like an old abandoned crack motel. And I said, um, excuse me, I don't stay in places like this. And this was my petulant childness just coming out full force. I got off of the bus 
ran upstairs, called my mom, and just started screaming, banana, 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 get me out of here, banana. And she's like, whoa, calm down. Like, we'll figure this out, okay? We will figure this out. So the first day I go to IOP, I tell the counselor, I'm like, look, dude, I'm from, like, a really nice suburb and just being a total brat and a total asshole. And, like, I don't stay in places like this, so I'm going to leave. Like, my mom's going to come get me. And this guy is like, that's what you do. You get your mom to bail you out. You run. And that's just not cool. Like, that is not cool. You know, he has my mom on the phone and she's almost in tears telling him about how horrible the place that I'm staying at is. And I'm sitting there smiling. It's on speakerphone and I'm smiling. I'm geeking. I'm like, this is great. See, she's in the palm of my hand. She is going to come and get me. And I knew that that was the truth. You see, the thing was, when I was little, my dad was an alcoholic. But when they got older, it switched. Now my mom was the alcoholic. When I graduated high school and my friends needed somewhere to party, it was my house. My friends knew that Steve's mom is the cool mom. She's going to be the one who not only will let us drink here, but she'll drink here with us. You know, and so I had that against her. You know, I knew from when I was in the treatment center and I had my first family session over the phone, my therapist called and my mom was drunk. I picked up my phone, I, this, the therapist's phone, I slammed it down. And now I had this card that I could play at any time. And so I'm just sitting there grinning, like, doesn't matter what you tell her, she is coming down. And that's exactly what happened. My mom came, my mom bailed me out. I got home and guess what? I got high. That was that. It was a wrap. Very first night that I stepped off the plane, I called somebody, I went and copped. The next day I decided I was gonna call Dave. Um, before I had left to go to Florida, I went to go meet Dave at his house so I could get a couple pills for the flight and to say goodbye. And you know, he told me how proud of me he was, that I was going to get help. And you know, his cancer was starting to go into remission. And you know, he was happy things were going really well. And so now it's like a day or two after I'm back, I call Dave and I'm like, oh, what's up, man? Like, I'm going to come get something. You're like, how are you doing? I want to come say hi. But instead, his mom answers and she says his cancer came back and it's way worse. It's spread throughout his entire body and he is in the hospital and he would really like for you to come see him. And I couldn't do it. I wouldn't do it. You know, the reasoning I gave was because I was still so upset from Dan's passing that I couldn't see somebody else in that state. But the truth is, I just knew that if I went down there, he wasn't going to be giving me any pills. So what was the point? That's how gone I was already. And I was back for like two days. And I'm already just like only thinking of myself. I don't care about my dying friend who's begging me on the phone. Hey, can you come down this time? Nah, man, not today, not today. Um, and that was that, you know. Uh, around that same time, uh, me and one of my friends couldn't find perks one day. And so 
one of us came up with the idea of, hey, why don't we go to North Philly and try to find some heroin? And we were like, you know what? That's not a bad idea. Let's just go. So we got up there and we, we found we found somebody who was standing on the corner in Kensington. We stepped out of our car. We were going over to the alley and about five steps from my car, my phone rang and it was my perk dealer. And we turned around and we jumped back in the car and we went home. But now I knew exactly, exactly where to get the dope. And now it was in my mind as a possibility of something I could do. So the next day I went back by myself and I copped for the first time. And I got, I got two bags, you know, one for me and one for the homeless guy who showed me where to go. And I tried it. And I was completely, totally underwhelmed. This wasn't the same thing as with the perks. This wasn't the same thing as with weed. This was, okay, I feel this, but what's the big deal? I don't understand. Everybody says how dangerous this is and how terrible this is, but this really isn't that bad. I don't see what the, what the big deal is. And so now... I, I was like, that's cool. You know, I can go back again. If I ever can't get any pills, I'll go back. Um, so I did. You know, the next time I couldn't get anything, I went back. This time, uh, for whatever reason, they thought I was a cop and they wouldn't sell to me. And I started chasing these dudes down the street on foot. Like, hey, hey, just just come back. Just come back. These are dudes in, in Kensington that I really should not have been following. But I was just like, wait a minute. All right, fine. Whatever. And I put it aside. Dope was out of my mind. Um, until a few more weeks went by and I got the call that Dave's cancer had finally taken his life. Um, I, had, I had just driven to go get some weed, actually, when I got the call. And I was on my way back. And so I was devastated. And I got home. I couldn't cry because I was so gone like emotionally that I couldn't cry but I just went in and I said mom Dave's dead can I have money and I said I need to go buy some more weed and I knew that that's not what I was going to do I called up my perk guy as soon as she gave me the loot and he said I don't have perks anymore all I have is heroin and I was like this is fine because now I don't have to go to those shady dudes in North Philly now I can just go to my friend, somebody that I've known for years, somebody I trust. This is perfect. This is great. This isn't dangerous at all. This isn't going to street cop. This is going to my friend. And so I went and I did it. And that was that. You know, the story from there is the typical story that you hear over and over with these types of things. You know, after Dave died... I wasn't going to band practice anymore. You know, we had a show coming up. I didn't even care. You know, my my band member broke us up because I didn't care and I wasn't even attempting it anymore. And I was like, fine, this is great. I don't need you anyway. I don't need anybody. I have myself and I have this new connect and this is cool. Um, then I found out that I wasn't the only one who was doing dope that I really wasn't alone. This was when things had really started hitting in my county. Now, it seems like almost everybody was on it. 
it's not the reality. The reality was there was definitely people who weren't, but I couldn't tell you who they were. Everybody that I was close, close friends with either was doing it or had left our group of friends because everybody else was doing it and they didn't want to be associated with it. And so now I had some dudes that I could ride with. You know, I, I got a job delivering pizza and I had a little scam where, you know, I would have one of my friends call in an order and have it go into the very, very edge of our delivery area so that it would be like a half hour drive, my boss would think. But instead of going to deliver this fake order, I would take the food, throw it out and go cop because now I had an hour where my boss didn't think anything was going on. He thought I was just delivering food. So now I'm getting high while I'm at work on my own or with a friend. And that was, that was how I was living. And it was cool. It was fine for me. I did had not have any complaints. Um, then I met the one. Uh, she walked into the restaurant that I was delivering for asking for a job. And, you know, one thing led to another. And we wound up hanging out to smoke one day. Um, while we were smoking, it came up, hey, I do perks. Hey, I do perks too. And well, I kind of also do dope. And I kind of also do dope too. Now I have this beautiful running buddy, running buddy in my mind. And this is the one. This is everything I need. Now I'll have a girl and I'll have my friends and I have my job and I don't need anything else. You know, <laughs> you notice during this, there was never any thought about anybody else. I didn't care what my parents were feeling. I wasn't caring about education or anything. I was just caring about today because now not only Dan died, Dave died too. I could really die at any time. So why do I worry about tomorrow? Just focus on right now. A very twisted version of, of you know, Edgar Tolle and, and the power of now. Just this whole right now, right here, but with dope. And so that was that. Was that. That's what I did. Um, it caught up. It caught up to me very quick. Um, I got fired from the job because I was going to buy heroin, you know, and my boss called me out on it. He said, I think you're going to go buy drugs in New Jersey. And I was just like, no, I'm actually going to buy drugs in Philly. <laughs> but I didn't tell him that. But uh, I got fired. Um, I still had the girl around, but it was just, it was just terrible. You know, it was, it was doing what she was doing, which was things other than heroin you know, I'm not going to tell her story. That's hers to tell. God bless her. But it was getting bad. And it was getting a lot deeper. Um, and quick. It was getting like that really quick. Um, one day, me and my good friend Eric uh, went to Philly to cop. And we bought two bundles. And on the way home, we got pulled over by the police. Um, they... they asked me to come out of the car. They asked if I had anything in it. I said no, and they went and searched my car anyway. And they found the two bundles, and I was arrested on the spot. Um, and so I, uh, now I had another drug charge, and this time it wasn't going to just be like a half gram of weed. Now it was going to be two bundles of heroin, you know, and I'm driving. 
So there's that. And it's just like, oh no, like I really fucked up this time. But I didn't care. Whatever. My parents will bail me out. They always do. I'll be fine. You know, I'm not afraid of jail. Why should I be afraid of jail? My friends will be in jail. You know, this is cool. And so uh, that was my attitude towards it. Uh, we wound up going to, to the courthouse for trial. And when we went to the pretrial, I mentioned to my, my public defender how I didn't give them consent to search my car. And so he was trying to make a big deal out of that and wound up getting me a very, very nice plea deal of just probation and with not having the, uh, the heroin on my record. And, you know, this was a blessing. This was a gift. But I didn't see it that way. I saw it as me getting away with it again because I'm that good. I never get caught. I'm Teflon Don over here. I'm fine. So um, the very, very first day, the very first day of my probation, they, uh, they told me at the courthouse, listen, you're going to go to this probation officer. He's going to check your levels. You're going to have your initial consultation. That's that. Now, my brain, because I'm an addict, thought like this. He's going to check my levels. All he really cares about is that my levels go down. So if I get super, super high, like higher than ever before, and go in and pee in the cup, then I can just keep getting a little bit less high and a little bit less high, and I can be like, well, at least I'm making progress. This is great. But the thing I didn't think about was after doing that bundle, there was no chance I was going to be peeing. I was not peeing in the cup. So I wound up sitting there for about six hours until my probation officer was finally like, you can just tell me you're high, dude. Just just come out and say it. And I told him my plan, and he just cracked up. He was like, no, it does not work that way. He, he was like, just get yourself together, dude. You know, go to treatment. Do what you need to do. Like, get yourself together. And I was like, all right, fine. Uh, so I decided to, to go to a local treatment center. And I only did it because they told me to. That was the only reason. I didn't want to get sober. I was just going because I knew I'd go to jail and jail didn't sound too cool. So I went to this treatment center and I was there for about three days before I left AMA because I was just not having it. And because I was at a local treatment center, I knew I could pretty much walk to my aunt's house from there. So why would I stay? And so I left. And when I left, my, my parents finally uh, started to put their foot down. And they were like, look, we're not going to support you anymore. You know, your habit at least. We're not going to pay for it. Um, because they had, I'd still been just manipulating them into giving me what I needed. And they said it was going to stop. And so since now I didn't have a source of income, and I wasn't getting it from my parents, I moved to the next best thing and I decided to steal. And so the very first time that I stole, I went bigger, went home, and I grabbed my mom's wedding ring. Honestly, I didn't know what it was. I just knew that it was definitely worth something. And I took it to the pawn shop, and I got cash, and I got dope. And I was like, wow, I got a new way of getting high. And that became not every day, but whenever we needed to. You know, me and that girl just going every single day, stealing, go to Chester, go to Philly, go home, over and over and over again. Um, 
And of course, I'm not peeing clean whatsoever. And after a couple of appointments with my PO, he was finally like, look, dude, like you have until Monday to decide if you're going to go to treatment or you're getting locked up. And so this is probably the point in the story where I should be like, okay, well, I went to treatment. But instead, I concocted another amazing plan of mine. This time my plan was, okay, I will just go to an IOP. And if I go to the IOP, my, my PO won't know the difference. And it's still treatment. I'll just tell him that. So I go to this IOP for the intake. And the dude knows I'm strung out within five minutes. And he's like, dude, you need to go inpatient. Like, we are not taking you in this IOP. I can arrange for you to go to that same rehab that you have just ran away from and just take your car and go. And I said, fine. And the truth was I had absolutely no intention of doing that, none whatsoever. I got out, I got in my car, and I decided I'm going to go pick up Michelle or uh, whoever, you know, one of my friends, and just go get, get high, you know, try to find money and get high. And so I'm driving, and all of a sudden my phone rings, and it's my mom. I pick it up, I say hello, and I hear a man's voice, and he says, this is detective uh, such and such from uh, the Marple Newtown Police Department. Um, have you been forging checks and stealing jewelry? And I knew that I was busted. I knew I was caught. And I reacted the same way that I did when I had been arrested with the weed. Fuck you, you fucking pig. You're never going to get me. Hang up the phone. Start speeding down the road. And then what do you know? My gaslight goes on. So now I have no way to even get out of this situation. So uh, I wound up going back to my house and posting up outside until uh, the cops left. And when the cops left, me and uh, the girl that I was with went inside and we were going to go try to, to get some DVDs and stuff like that to, to sell. But as soon as we walked in the door, uh, my parents blocked it and they said, you're going to treatment tonight. And, you know, I kicked and I screamed and I fought and I cried and I came up with a plan. And my plan this time, this one was brilliant, brilliant. I'm going to just go to the psych ward. If I go to the psych ward but not go to one that I've been to before, my parents won't know the difference. I'll be there for a week. I'll eat some food. I'll go home. And I'll be right back to where I am. And my parents completely bought it. You know, since I had been in the psych ward in high school, it became kind of like a yearly tradition for, for a while. You know, every year I would at least make one appearance for a week or so just because I was unmedicated, I was depressed, and I was manic depressive. And I was not trying to do the right thing. I was just trying to self-medicate. So to say, oh, I'm going to go to this place that you've never heard of, my parents would never think twice about it. And so they agreed. Um, we got to this psych ward, me and the girl. They took her right back. But when I went in there, I... I didn't tell them that I was on heroin and I just told them I was depressed and stuff and they said that I was fine to go and I knew what that meant so I lost it and I put on the biggest show I could possible screaming kicking chairs 
breaking, trying to break down doors. They are very heavy doors in psych wards. I do not recommend trying it, but I tried it anyway to get out. And the doctor came running down the hall and he goes, fine, you can stay, you can stay. So I get into the back, they're sitting me down, they're doing my intake and all, and I'm like, oh, by the way, I'm addicted to heroin. Is that okay? Like, can you guys give me something for that? And they were like, oh my God, why didn't you tell us this hours ago? We have methadone we can put you on while you are in here. So I'm like, okay, wonderful, this is great. I woke up the next morning in an isolation room uh, completely by myself in like an observe an observatory room or whatever and I walked out and Mich the girl was nowhere to be found and so I uh, was pissed I was like what am I doing here why am I still here like this is ridiculous um, I met with my therapist that day for the first time and she told me straight up look you're a junkie dude you need to go to rehab this isn't the place for you. We've arranged to send you to uh, Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. You just have to have an intake with them on the phone. And I'm like, no, I'm not going to do it. And they're like, just listen, please just listen. So I go, all right, fine. So I get on the phone and they go through their whole spiel, you know, telling me about the treatment center and all the things that they offer and the staff and the philosophy and everything. And they mentioned equine therapy. And I said, oh, really? You have horses? They go, yeah, we, we have two of them. I said, really? Because the last treatment center I went to in Florida told me there was horses. There was no horses. If you don't have a horse, I'm leaving. I'm done. Whatever. Fine. I'll go. And so I did. And I agreed. And I went. And... I don't know what it was. I really don't know what it was. It might have just been being, and I hate cliches, but being sick and tired of being sick and tired, where I was just like, dude, I'm going to be in this place. I'm going to be here for 30 days. Maybe I should just like at least attempt it. And so that's what I, uh, that's what I wanted to do. And so while I was there, I was a perfect patient for the most part, you know, at least in the eyes of the staff because what I was doing was everything that they, that I thought they would want. I told them all that they wanted to hear. I went to the groups that they wanted. I did what I had to do, but I had no plans of actually staying sober. I was just kind of going through the motions. I thought, you know, I can still probably do it from time to time. You know, I remember, and it's funny actually telling this right now is the first time I remembered this in a very long time. Um, my parents had sent me money for the vending machines and stuff at, at the rehab, and I grabbed an envelope and I started putting the money away and calling it my relapse fund. And I would ask my friends there if they would contribute to my relapse fund. And I said, look, I'm not planning to relapse, but just in case anything happens when I get out of here, you know, I want to at least have the money just in case, you know, but I don't plan on relapsing. Why else would I have a relapse, or a relapse fund? So, um, that was my behavior and that's how I acted. And uh, funny story, the, uh, the last day, it was the very last day before I left, um, I, I went to the vending machine to get some tobacco. They had, uh, you know, cigarettes in their vending machine and they were out of what I use. And so I started flipping out 
and I decided that I was going to walk off campus and that I was going to go buy it myself and there was nothing they could do to stop me. So as I'm walking down the hill towards wherever, I don't know where I am, I don't know where I'm going, but I'm going to find tobacco. My therapist is on the phone with my probation officer at the exact same time telling him how great I'm doing um, and how much progress I've made. There was a knock at her door, and so she hung it with my probation officer. The time it took for her to get to her front door of her office and back to her desk, she got the email saying that I had left property. If that email would have came a minute or two before, it would have came while she was on with my probation officer. These are the types of things that happen to me that I get lucky, but I don't recognize it that way. I think it's just me because I'm me and I never get in trouble. So there was another, another little sign, if you will, of, you know, some kind of hope, you know, somebody looking out for me, something, whatever. Um, so when I, I left the next day and the next day, you know, my mom came, she picked me up. They said, this is going to be different this time. Everything's going to change. I get home and good thing I had my relapse fund and I went and I copped and this just began the cycle for me. You know, I spent maybe a month out and then I, I went back, you know, during that month or two that I was out, I met up with that same girl again. I was doing the same thing I was doing before. You know, the only thing now was a lot more of my friends had stopped doing it. They had started moving on and trying to get their lives together. It was a phase for them. But for me, it wasn't a phase. And now I was running with very few people doing the same thing constantly. Um, so I, I decided to go back. I don't know why, probably because I couldn't get any. But I called them and I went back. And my very first day there, I had just gotten through my intake and everything. I go up to, to the speaker meeting that night. I'm walking back to my room. And who do I see coming around the corner but that girl that I had been with for the past two years? She had followed me to the treatment center and was a patient herself. Now, I thought this was great. I have the girl that I'm talking to with me in treatment. I don't even have to worry about talking to other girls. Now I have one here. This is great. But it was terrible. It was absolutely terrible. It was just even more reason not to focus on myself. It was even more reason to worry about what she was doing, who she was talking to, what she was getting into, and not worrying about why I do what I do and how I can stop it. Um, there was probably about a week left in my treatment. Um, we were both still in there. And one day we both decided that we had enough and that we were gonna up and leave. And so we, we ran. And we ran through the woods and we got to a Sheets, which is like a local convenience store. And we got to the Sheets and we, we used somebody's cell phone to call my mom and I figured she's going to bail me out again. And she said, okay, I'll be there in an hour and a half. Just, just stay there. And, you know, an hour goes by, two hours go by, three hours go by. And I'm starting to get worried. And I'm like, why isn't she here? And now it's starting to pour. And the rain's coming down. And I look super pathetic sitting on the curb in, you know, whatever I was wearing, my pajama pants and a T-shirt because I was just in rehab with no cell phone, 
soaking wet and all of a sudden an Escalade pulls up and out steps one of the directors from the rehab. And he says, your mom called and said we might find you here. You want a ride? And I'm like, oh, no, they're actually going to make me go back. And I went back and I was like, dude, no, no, I'm not staying. But I did. And they wound up sending me to a recovery house in that area. Um, I got to the recovery house and I was like, dude, if I'm here, I might as well at least attempt to do this thing. And so I got, I got a sponsor. I got a home group. I did all the things that they told me to do. But I didn't take it seriously. You know, I'm not going to focus on the program that I'm a member of too much. But I am a member of a 12-step program. And I got through my first five within two weeks. I just rushed through it. And I didn't understand why I wasn't getting any results and why I was still a complete mess. You know, while I was in, in treatment that time, they prescribed me Thorazine for, uh, for my, my anxiety and for sleep or something. I don't know. I just lied about whatever symptom I could think of that would get me Thorazine because I thought it would fuck me up. You know, so now I'm popping Thorazine, you know, getting stuck pretty much. Just like body paralysis, but pissing clean and just being like, I don't even know, just a mess. You know, I lasted there for a few weeks, and then I, I took my ball and I went home again. I called my parents, and I begged, and I pleaded, and I cried, and I said that I was going to kill myself. I played that card, and they came and picked me up, and what do you think I did? I went and copped. You know, this is the cycle. This is the cycle that I got myself into that I had no intention of leaving, and it just continued like that. I'd go on for a few weeks until I was too sick or too poor or whatever, and then I would make a call. You know, I went back a third time, I came home because my parents by that point were just like, he's just gonna run, he's not gonna stay at the recovery house, just let him come home. You know, same thing. Finally went back for a fourth time to this treatment center, and this time I was broken. And I was, I was, I was ready, or at least I thought I was ready. And I actually made my first attempt. You know, I started talking to, to, to the counselors and, you know, finding out what they did and how they did it. And, you know, I agreed to go out of state. I agreed to go back to Florida to, uh, to go to extended care. You know, I figured the more treatment I get right now, the better. And this is, this is going to be good. You know, I told my story to the community. I was, I was reading the Bible, even though this is the kid who was saying the Bible is bullshit however many years ago. Now I'm reading the Bible and using it to quote during group. You know, just completely insane. But at least I was trying. You know, I was trying. And that was, that was my intention. I was going to go to Florida and I was going to do it right. And so the, the treatment center brought me to the airport and I walked through the terminal. I got to the gate. I still had an hour to wait, and I noticed the bar, and I went and I drank. On the way to, to extended care, from one treatment to the other, I went to the bar and I got drunk. You know, because that's, that's how it goes. That's the way this thing works. You know, we don't think. We just act. And so when I got down to Florida, I was honest, and I, I told them what happened. 
and they agreed to let me stay. Um, I wound up spending my birthday down there, my uh, my 24th birthday or 23rd, whatever. Spent my birthday down there, and when I got out, uh, they sent me to a recovery house, and I had every intention of doing it this time. You know, I had been the model patient again while I was down there. You know, I was going to get out. I was going to do my 90 and 90. I was going to do everything. But it was more like 90 and 90 as far as days on the beach go. That's all I was caring about. I wouldn't go on job search. I would go sit on the beach. You know, I remember one time I got I got this sunburn so bad that I needed to go to the hospital. And instead of being, you know, upset and horrified by these burns on my back, I'm like, sweet, now they're not going to make me go on job search for another week or two. And that was that. I would go to meetings, but I would be the first person in and the first person to leave, you know, or the last person in and the first person to leave. I wouldn't talk to anybody. I wouldn't make friends. I wouldn't share. You know, I got a sponsor, but I didn't do anything with him. I just had the number. That's all that I I felt like I needed. You know, I could say, oh, I have a sponsor. And I didn't understand why things weren't changing. I didn't understand why I was still miserable. I didn't understand why I was still crazy inside my mind, even though I was doing everything that I'm supposed to be. Um, eventually, I, I had gotten a phone call from my mom, and she told me that the police department was finally ready to, to drop the charges for stealing the jewelry and for forging the checks. You know, God bless my parents. They, they fought tirelessly to, to get them to do that. You know, my parents originally pressed the charges, but they, uh, they decided to drop them and the state picked them up. And so they just nonstop hounded the detectives and said how well I was doing and got them to drop the charges. All I needed to do was appear in court. And so I said, fine. And, you know, I had a pass from my recovery house. I was going to go home and they had this whole plan where I would get off the plane I would go right to court and then right back to the airport and be, be done. But instead, my parents took me home first. And in the however many minutes that I had, I managed to get my keys, get in my car, and get to Philly. I went to go see the judge to get him to formally dismiss everything, and I had a bundle in my sock. I was standing in front of the bench telling him how well I was doing with a bundle just sitting there and just thinking about how in a couple hours I'm going to be away from my parents and I can do this bundle. So when, uh, when I got done there, I, I, I stashed it. I got back to Florida and I got my, uh, I got, I got back to the recovery house and I hit it and I just sat on it for probably like two or three weeks. I sat on it, didn't do anything. But then my grandmom came to pick me up because she lived in Florida and for the weekend. And while I was while I was there, I finally decided to break out that bundle. And I got loaded that entire weekend. And I knew that on Monday morning they were going to bring me back to my recovery house and I was gonna get a piss test and I was gonna fail it. And so I begged them to let me go back to where I had gone for extended care. I didn't tell them why. Uh, the extended care was dual diagnosis. So I played it off like I was just having some mental mental difficulties at the time. Wouldn't tell them that it was because I had just relapsed. Um, 
So I got back to, to this treatment center and my insurance said that they weren't going to cover me, that I had spent so much time that all my, my insurance money was up. And so my grandparents paid for it out of pocket. And I wound up staying there for about two months. And, you know, for a while I really was trying again. You know, I wanted to, I wanted to do it. It was starting to get in there until she arrived. And then the one was back and it was a different one, but it was the one. And, you know, I met up with her. I thought that we were going to be together forever. And I was, I was making plans. You know, we made it set up so that when we got out, she went to one recovery house. I went to another one that was right down the street and we'd be able to see each other. So the day I got out of treatment, um, I went to this recovery house. I spent one night there, went to IOP for one day. Then I went to go visit the girl. And, you know, I went to the, went to the clinic where she was at, uh, met her therapist. Her therapist said how great of a guy I seemed to be and said I could take her off campus until dinner. When dinner time came, we ran. Um, it was New Year's Eve, and the plan was to go to Miami. Well, no, that let me back up a bit. The plan was, because it was New Year's Eve, the plan was to go to where our treatment center had been. We figured if we took the train down there, that there would be all-night meetings because of New Year's Eve. We could stay there overnight and then go to the treatment center in the morning and try to get put into a different recovery house or something. Uh, but then, once we started riding, the plan slowly evolved to, hey, I heard Pitbull's doing a concert on the beach. I have to say, I do not even like Pitbull, but that just sounded so awesome at that point that I was like, fine, whatever, let's do it. And we stayed on the train until we got to Miami. When uh, I got to, when we got to Miami, we, uh, we found a taxi and we found a motel. We had a little bit of money in our pocket and we spent it all. We spent all of the money to get the hotel and to get the taxi. And we stayed there for the night and in the morning we were homeless. Um, when we ran away from our recovery houses, it was so spur of the moment that, you know, we didn't have anything with us. I didn't have my, my psych meds. We didn't have clothes. We had nothing. And we just went. You know, we spent a few days out until, uh, until I couldn't go without my medicine anymore. I was starting to, to have really bad physical side effects. And so we called an ambulance and they brought me to a, uh, a Spanish speaking hospital where they had an interpreter explain to me that they would not be giving me any psych meds, that I seemed to be going through withdrawal from some sort of opiate, which wasn't true. I hadn't done anything. But they said that they weren't going to be able to assist me and to please kindly leave their hospital. And so we went to a park and we laid there and that was that. And we waited until the morning and we said we had enough. And the plan at that time was to call our parents. She was from North Carolina. I'm from Pennsylvania. We figured if we called our parents that at least one of them would say yes that they would, they would pick us up or send us a plane ticket or something. Um, so we tried my mom first and she hung up on me. She said sucks and hung up. It's the first time my mom had stood up for me, stood up to me. And I was just like, wow, stunned. So then we called her mom 
And her mom said the exact same thing. Like, no, I'm not going to help you. In fact, I'm going to send your brother to pick you up. So this dude was driving from North Carolina to Miami to pick her up. And we're just like, whoa, like we probably should not have done that. Like this is about to get serious. Um, finally, my mom called me back and she said, listen, I'm going to send you a hundred dollars. You can either take that money and get a train ticket back to your recovery house and you can tell them what's going on or you can keep that money, but that will be the last I send you and you'll be on your own. And that was my intention. I said, can the girl come with me? And when she said no, I said, well, then I'm going to take the money and I'll see you. And, you know, I, I got the money. We got a train. We we're going to go try to get our stuff back and then be on our own. But somewhere on that train, it, it came to our minds that it probably was not the best idea. You know, luckily... I had at least a semi-clear head because I hadn't done any drugs. I was completely a dry drunk, if you will, to use a term. But I, I was clear enough thinking that I was like, this is absolutely stupid. And maybe we should take the opportunity that my mom is giving us and, you know, go home. Let's just go home. And so that's what we did. You know, we got a hotel for the night. My mom put us up in a hotel. We waited for her brother to come pick her up. And then in the morning, uh, my grandmother picked me up to uh, bring me back to her house until I could get a flight back to Philadelphia. Um, the day I got home to Philly, once again, I got high. It was the same thing all over again. When I got back this time, it was completely different. There was nobody left. Nobody was getting high anymore. Um, you know, everybody was either out in rehab, in a recovery house, whatever, you know, but it was just me. Um, I found one other kid and we took care of each other, but it was miserable. It was an absolutely miserable existence. Um, I went to a doctor at that time and I, I told her that I was sober, but I was anxious and got her to give me a script of Klonopin. So now I was mixing K-pins with my dope and just not even, not even here, not even on this planet, just gone, completely gone. And I did this and I figured I would die, but I was cool. That's fine. Um, and I just continued on for a couple months until I finally said, I'm going to give this one last shot. You know, if it doesn't work this time, whatever, you know, I don't even have like my insurance company is probably not even going to pay for it, but whatever. So I called, uh, the, the recovery uh, center, the rehab center in Lancaster. And I begged them to let me come back. And just like I thought, my insurance company would not pay for it. But luckily, they, uh, they did an Act 106, which is a Pennsylvania law that uh, requires them to put you in treatment if it's medically necessary, I believe. And so I, uh, I got Act 106 and I got 37 days in treatment. That time... I was just completely broken. You know, I wasn't focusing on trying to get one over on anybody or anything. I was just sick. You know, it was the worst detox of my life, adding in the benzos to the opiates. You know, I would be sitting on the couch having a conversation with you and then five minutes later just be completely passed out, like where I was sitting. 
just not not a fun process at all this time and I shut up and I listened that's what I did they told me that they were going to send me to a recovery house in the middle of nowhere and I had a little hissy fit and I stomped and I cried and I begged my mom to get me out of it but she said that that wasn't happening anymore and I just accepted it one of my closest aunts the one who had lived down the street from the rehab I ran away from she she had gotten very sick while I was in Florida and she died and again I freaked out and I lost it but I accepted it and I was like there's nothing I can do I just have to do what they tell me you know maybe they know a little bit more than I do and that was that you know I got out I went to a recovery house in the middle of nowhere I didn't have a car I didn't have a phone I didn't have money you know I got food stamps I got you know, Wi-Fi passwords to make Wi-Fi calling. I did what I had to do, but I was happy and I was making friends and I was doing the damn thing. I was going to meetings. I was having a sponsor. I was actually working the steps and slowly things started to get better and better and better. Um, it went from being a resident in the recovery house to an offer to be an assistant manager at one then to be a full-time manager at one. You know, after that, I moved out for the first time in my life, got my own apartment. You know, I, I started going back to school. You know, I got sponsees. I got guys that I was helping. You know, I was passing it along. And I started getting days. And I started getting months. And then I got a year. And then it was just, you know on and on and on the blessings and the great things in my life just kept coming and coming and coming but i don't want to misrepresent it because it's very very difficult at times because when you walk down that hill or out that door from rehab you're in the real world again you know the world didn't stop while you were gone and the world is going to keep going even though you're in recovery and there are hard days and there are days that I didn't want to do it anymore. And there are days that I cried and there were days that I had the drug dreams and all of this other stuff. And I just wanted to stop and go back and run. But I didn't do it. I did what they told me to do. I took direction. I stopped doing Steve's way and started doing everybody else's way you got to understand that as i said in the beginning I was a punk rock kid so the idea of somebody telling me what to do and where to go and who to talk to and who not to talk to was absolutely horrible to me i thought it was going to be such a drag but then i realized that they weren't trying to control me. They were just trying to help me. And I started making like real connections in the, in the fellowship and things were going well, things were going very well. Um, you know, from there, after I moved out, I wound up going back to school. I'm, uh, I'm back in school now. I'm at Penn state, uh, York campus, which is the local campus out there, uh, political science major. Um, I got a 3.84 GPA last semester which is the highest that I've ever had. 
you know, now I'm not worrying about fitting in with anybody because I fit in with myself and I'm comfortable with myself. And if people don't like the fact that I know the answer to a question, that sucks for them. You know, I'm not afraid to do that anymore. You know, I wound up talking to the dude from my band again and we got back together and made a song. And from there, that song became an album, which became shows. And now on April 23rd, my band is going to be opening up for National Act Twisted. You know, these are the types of things that happen in my life when I do the right thing. You know, I just got a job covering high school sports for my local newspaper. You know, a dream of mine to go into sports journalism. That is so cool. So cool. But you know what? If I even think for a second that I can just start taking control again and not listening to suggestions of others, I will be right back where I was. I said in the beginning I got two years sober this week, and that's true, but I'm no closer or further away from a drink than somebody who has 24 hours. It can happen anytime, and I have to keep that in mind. That's, that's very important. You know, as great as things are for me, though, it's, it's very bittersweet. I want to be honest. Um, this, this thing that I have, this addiction, is all over right now. It's very, very severe in my area and all over this country. And people are dying left and right my generation is dying and it's just so sad that you know when i log on to facebook now if i see somebody getting mentioned a bunch of times that i i don't think that they're congratulating them or wishing them happy birthday or anything like that if i see somebody getting a bunch of mentions i know that they died that's the reality of this thing you know I've seen people who just couldn't get it that have died from it. And I've seen people who had significant clean time die from it. It only takes one. And I know that that's cliche. And I know that you're probably rolling your eyes thinking about it, but it's the facts. It, it's the facts. You know, the country that we live in right now is is going through an epidemic and the people that are in charge of insurance companies and pharmaceutical companies, you know, they don't care about you individually. They may say they do, but they don't, they want to turn a profit and they don't care. So what you need to do, what I needed to do was to start, you know, recognizing these things and making my life better. You know, recognizing the fact that if I don't make it better, then nobody else will. And, you know, I, I fought stagnation. I fought the temptation that you will probably see if, if you are a member of a 12-step program. You know, the temptation to just get complacent and to just concentrate on my steps and work in the recovery industry and do what I do. But... I, I couldn't do that. I had to keep moving. And that's that's one of my messages that I implore to you. Please always keep moving. Always keep going forward. You know, 
always move forward, going straight will get you nowhere. Green Day lyrics right there. That means so much to me right now, or at least they did in early recovery. You know, I'm not anonymous. I am not anonymous. I want people to know. I want people to know what I went through and what everybody else that's exactly like me goes through. I want to erase that stigma. I want people to realize that the people that are addicts today are not what you would think stereotypically. They are the person next door. They are the kid in the suburbs. They are the girl that was the prom queen. They are the high school football team captain. That's not even a joke. My high school football team's captain just died about a month ago from when I graduated. You know, my good friend Eric, the one that I had gotten arrested with, he died about two weeks ago. Another kid that was in the, the recovery house that I managed, he died the week after Eric. Every week, it seems to be more and more, and it's troubling, and it's scary. So I hope that if you listen to this, that you can find some inspiration. You know, you don't need to just go to a 12-step program. You don't need to just listen to, 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 to the big book or anything like that. I'm going to go off topic with that a little bit. You know, I just want to say, you know, if, if you want to, if you got to do whatever you got to do, if you have to get on Suboxone, if you have to get on Methadone, whatever you have to do, if you have to go to, you know, an extended care program, if you have to get out of your state, whatever you need to do, if at the end of the day, you're not living the way that you are living, if you're not getting high and you're not miserable, it does not matter. It doesn't matter where you go. It doesn't matter. There isn't just one way to get this. And the sooner that we realize that and start embracing that and start coming out and being like, this is who I am. This is what I stand for. How can we make this better? And stop living in the cliches and living in the bullshit and just focus on the future and making this, this country better and making ourselves better. You know, I, I don't want to keep rambling, but that's a message that I, I would really hope to get out to everybody. So if you've listened to this all the way through, I appreciate it. I really do. If you are struggling right now, you know, reach out to this podcast. Reach out to me, you know, Rich Steve on Twitter, at Rich Steve. Hit me up on there. Rich Steve 17 on Instagram. Send me a message and tell me what is going on and I will help you. I will do everything I can. Just say you listen to the podcast and you need help. And I will help you. Please. If you're struggling, just reach out. You can do this. If I could do this, you can do this. It took me like 10 times going through treatment. It might take you 15. It might take you one. But if you don't make the effort, if you don't get up off your ass get into the car and go to treatment, it's never going to happen. If you don't make the effort, even if you don't want to go to treatment, 
to tell somebody what's going on and to ask for help. It will never happen. There's nothing to be ashamed of. There's nothing to be embarrassed about. It's who you are right now, but it's not who you have to be forever. My name is Steve. I'm an alcoholic and I'm not anonymous. You have been listening to Qualified. Qualified is not affiliated with any recovery program. All organizations, institutions, books, people, places, things, and opinions expressed by each guest are entirely their own, part of their own journey of recovery, and not intended as medical advice. Qualified will never make a profit. We are self-supporting based on our own contributions and those of listeners. If you would like to donate to Qualified, please write us at qualifiedpodcast at gmail.com. All contributions go toward the production of the show, with any extra monies being donated to a pool of recovery-based organizations as suggested by our guests. If you have a story of recovery and you would like to be a guest on Qualified, please write us at qualifiedpodcast at gmail.com. If you are suffering from an addiction, there is help for you and there is hope for you. We on this podcast are living proof. Thank you for listening.